Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. In this interview, we talk to Brad Nelson, who is the Professor of Robotics and Intelligent Systems at the ETH Zurich. Sometimes, it's the smaller the better, especially when you're making robots capable of autonomously navigating in the human body or robots capable of dribbling a soccer ball the size of a piece of dust. What about wireless power? Does that make any sense? Well, believe me, it does when you reach the micro scale. Hi, Brad. Welcome to Talking Robots. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. You coined the term biomicrorobotics to describe a growing, or should I say shrinking, area of research in your lab. What is biomicrorobotics all about? Well, let's see. It really is about uh, shrinking these days. Everything is getting smaller that we're trying to do. But uh, the field really grew out of uh, the microrobotics field, which, which uh, started getting, uh, back in the ni- uh, mid-90s. Uh, uh, several robotics researchers around the world became interested in how we can take some of the lessons we've been learning in robotics over the past uh, half a century and uh, use them at, at uh, sub-millimeter scales. And uh, in the late 90s, uh, myself and some other folks started to realize that there were some really interesting applications of microrobotics in the biological world um, uh, in, in a couple different areas. One is, is using some of the tools we build, and the tools we, uh, in microrobotics are, are manipulators for handling very, very small objects, objects smaller than a millimeter in scale, uh, making force measurements, uh, visual measurements with optical microscopy at those scales, and, and uh, using some of those to manipulate and, and to, to probe uh, biological organisms like cells. Um, we've been working with fruit flies. We've worked with a variety of different organisms. Um, the other aspect which uh, we've been uh, moving into more recently then has been to develop true sub-millimeter sized autonomous agents, devices that, are, that, are, uh, that have some intelligence and that are themselves smaller than a, manip- than a millimeter. So it's about, uh, uh, it's about the, the two sides of microbiotics, which is manipulating small things, but then also building those small things themselves. And what is your motivation in doing research in this area? Well, I think that uh, there are a lot of very interesting problems in, in the biological field that could use uh, uh, some engineering approaches, some some robotics technologies. I think there's uh, a lot of uh, uh, very interesting applications of this technology. Uh, but some of the other motivations have been in uh, using our tools to understand how organisms and, and biology is developed uh, uh, solutions to problems uh, that that are difficult for us to imagine. Things like the way uh, artificial uh, bacterial flagella uh, swim uh, at these small scales, at uh, at how a variety of organisms fly, uh, uh, fruit flies, and things like that. So, uh, it's about using our tools, but also letting uh, in biology, but also letting biology uh, influence the way we think about the design of of uh, intelligent uh, intelligent uh, devices at these scales. You've been developing a biomicro robot for retinal surgery. What do these robots look like? Well, these are devices that are they're, they're, the robots, and we call them robots. They're, they're uh, three-dimensional uh, MEMS parts. We microassemble them. They're, their dimensions are uh, anywhere from around 900 microns. It's a little bit smaller than a millimeter, down to around a, a half a millimeter, about 500 microns. Um, um, they have an asymmetry to them. They're sort of an ellipsoidal shape. 
Uh, they're made out of a combination of, of magnetic materials as well as uh, silicon and uh, various other kinds of, uh, of um, uh, materials, uh, fluorescing uh, uh, chemicals uh, for, for types of sensing applications, uh, other types of um, uh, devices, for instance, for drug delivery, things like that. And how would you use these robots in the body? Already, how would you put them in the body? Well, for the uh, uh, the retinal surgery, surgical application, our, our, our goal of, uh, is where we're heading towards is to try to make these uh, uh, one of the major dimensions smaller than 300 microns in size. And if we do that, then we could put it in a, I think, a 27-gauge needle. We could inject it directly into the eye and withdraw the needle without requiring any suturing. So uh, if you've ever seen a retinal surgery, it's, uh, it's an amazing uh, uh, surgery, uh, but it's, it's uh, a bit gruesome uh, to the patient uh, and to, uh, to those of us non-surgical uh, people that are watching it as well. Uh, the idea here is is to to make this a much less invasive, a much le- uh, cause much less damage. Uh, first of all, in, in putting the device in the eye, but second of all, in in uh, allowing for very pre- precise control at the retina, which is a very very delicate uh, tissue that. Uh, uh, it's 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 a lot is is not known about the mechanics of it and and the forces it can withstand, and it's difficult to control those. So part of our motivation uh, here is to. Uh, uh, to use these robots uh, for, for performing these very delicate operations. And so how would these robots be actuated? Well, I think uh, one of the, the real issues in making uh, devices, uh, robots at these scales, is how, to, how do you power them? Where does, where does the energy come to power them? And so our approach has been to use uh, externally generated magnetic fields. And so these fields can generate uh, torques on the, on the robot so they can align them. And then if we can generate field gradients, we can also generate forces on those. And so... Uh, the idea is really for them to, we call it energy harvesting in the sense where they're, they're using energy from their environment just the way um, uh, small, smaller and smaller organisms are constantly using energy from their environment in that way as well. So these robots are using wireless power to move around in their environment. Are they also capable of sensing their environment? or? Yeah, we, we have devices. Well, so, so they're, they're, they're observed... Um, one of the, uh, the advantages of doing this in the eye is that you can actually observe them with an ophthalmic microscope then as they're operating. So we can, we can sense their, local, their, their position or we can localize them that way. Uh, but we've also developed devices that are um, uh, uh, capable of fluorescing, uh, and that fluorescence is a function of the oxygen concentration. So one of the sensors, uh, one of the ways we can use these is, is, is the oxygen sensors, which can give an indication of eye health and also just provide some fundamental data for uh, ophthalmic researchers on what the oxygen concentration is at various points in the vitreous humor in the eye. So the intelligence in these robots is really in the way they're built because it provides uh, the actuation and the sensing capabilities? That's right. Uh, that's, that's exactly right, I think. The, um, they're not intelligent in the classic sense of a robot with a uh, computer in its uh, head running uh, some C, C code on it and uh, uh, doing some, some vision processing algorithms on board. They're, they're intelligent in the way that they're, they're designed for their environment and, and to interact with their uh, uh, external uh, external uh, equipment, uh, the external fields, and uh, the other devices we we uh, use for this. So maybe what are the main challenges uh, when designing a robot at this scale or designing an IBO-sized robot, for example? I mean, first of all, how do you build these micro-robots? Well, the way we, we uh, build these primarily is with microfabrication techniques. Uh, these are the same kind of techniques that are used to make uh, computer chips, um, 
memory chips, the kinds of things that are in your computer, these small circuits. Uh, we use them to make mechanical parts. Uh, that's the way we can make sensors out of them. We, we define the, the, the shape of the robot that way. Uh, and then we have a special system in our, our lab we've built uh, 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 for microassembly so that we can assemble these small parts and then into more complex uh, uh, devices that interact in, uh, in interesting ways. So that's, uh, that's the way we, we make the components generally. So on, on an IBO, you would put a computer, you would put motors, etc. Why can't we do this on a, on a micro-robot? They're awful small. <laughs> we can. Um, uh, there are certainly CMOS, some CMOS circuitry. There's some some kinds of circuitry that we uh, we make that's uh, small enough and, and can do some limited um, types of, of processing, analog signal processing. Um, but I think uh, um, I think you know if you look at, at at the way nature behaves at these scales, uh, uh, often it's it's simple behaviors uh, that are robust uh, that that interact with its environment in an appropriate way. And so we're trying to to use a lot some of the inspiration from from the way nature operates at these scales as well to develop our robots to to perform um, uh, dedicated tasks. You won the RoboCup nanogram category in all disciplines last year based on a control system which was quite similar to the one you use in in the medical robots. I was really impressed by the, the agility and the precision of these robots playing soccer. Can you present the, the RoboCup nanogram challenge to us? Sure. This was uh, um, uh, uh, part of the of RoboCup. RoboCup's a, an event, um, if you're not aware of it, that's been held, I think, uh, more than 10 years now. Uh, often has on the order of, uh, I think last year was 1,700 participants, uh, teams from all over the world that come together to play to, to put together teams of robots to play soccer, uh, and there's different leagues of uh, small robots. There's the IBO League. Uh, there are humanoid robots, and it's uh, it's a great competition to motivate students and to motivate people to to develop some uh, robots and interact with each other. And and um, uh, Craig Gray contacted us um, uh, about a year or so before uh, the, the event last summer, and. Uh, uh, said he was interested in, he works for the National Institute of Science and Technology in the States, very similar to the EMPA here in Switzerland, and uh, they were interested in sponsoring an event, uh, they're going to call it the Nanogram League, and uh, the idea was uh, to uh, create uh, sub, actually I think the, the limits on the scale were no, no, no dimension should be bigger than 300 microns, so about a third of a millimeter. Um, and uh, the, the competition was, uh, last year was a demonstration, uh, and there were three skills that the uh, devices were supposed to demonstrate, the robots. Uh, one was the two-millimeter dash. Uh, so there's a, there was a soccer pitch on uh, silicon that was about two millimeters in scale, and you had to be able to demonstrate your robot could run across it. Uh, the second was avoiding defenders. So your uh, robot uh, actually was guided by a microscope. A microscope was looking down and, and finding uh, obstacles on the field, and then uh, the idea was for your um, robot to... Uh, uh, avoid those obstacles uh, as it crosses the field. And then the third demonstration skill was a ball handling skill. And in this case, we were given a, a 100 micron diameter gold disc that uh, we were supposed to demonstrate that we could uh, move that disc across the field and put it in the goal. So those were the, the three uh, skills to be demonstrated. And what did your setup look like? Is there a human in the loop? Huh? Um, not when it was running, there was no human. Uh, no, it was completely autonomous. Um, the field itself is like you know, uh, two millimeters in size, very, very small. Uh, what we did was we put uh, two orthogonal sets of uh, um, electromagnetic coils, we call them Helmholtz coils, uh, at right angles to each other around the field. That allowed us to generate uh, 
uh, arbitrary fields, uh, uh, magnetic fields uh, across the, the soccer field. Uh, and then there's a microscope looking down. Um, we enclosed all of this in a plastic box to try to keep dust off the field because the dust is as big as a soccer ball. We didn't want dust falling on the field. And also to try and control uh, the humidity because humidity, uh, especially in Atlanta in the summer, can be pretty nasty, and that can cause things to stick at these scales. So that helped us to keep the, the environment more dry so that we could control the, the, the environmental conditions a little bit. What do the other teams use as a control mechanism? Well, the... Uh, the, the competition was originally inspired actually by Craig's Ph.D. thesis, which he did at Dartmouth, on uh, uh, electrostatic scratch drives. It was very, very, very interesting, very uh, piece of work. Uh, and, and so that was kind of the intention was that a lot of the teams would use that. And I think three of uh, the five teams used that approach. And then there was a Carnegie Mellon team that used a laser micro-machined uh, uh, permanent magnetic material and magnets then to drive it around. And then we used our uh, what, what, uh, a resonant uh, magnetic actuator that was uh, somewhat similar to the micro-robot uh, uh, retinal uh, robot, but, but had some fundamental differences in the way it operated. And so um, that proved to be a, a robust solution to this problem. So I watched the video of these robots uh, running around with the, their small gold soccer ball. And it made me think in the future, will doctors basically be able to sort of... Uh, very rapidly guide one of these robots through veins in a very precise manner? Is this just out of context? It sounds kind of like a fantastic voyage, but I, I think there's a lot of people, uh, uh, there's a certain lot of people in microrobotics that are thinking that, and there are uh, a lot of medical doctors that are realizing that uh, uh, one of the directions medicine is heading is going to be in, in very targeted uh, drug delivery. Uh, um, um, making diagnosis using special devices that can reach locations um, Uh, through very complex paths, for instance, in the inner ear. Um, so I think I think that in the future you can expect to see, I'm, I'm sure you're going to see, uh, uh, devices that doctors are going to be able to control very precisely to a variety of locations in the body. Already there's uh, 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 devices on the market by given imaging um, in uh, out of Israel for doing... Uh, entire uh, gastrointestinal inspection. Uh, while these are, these are centimeter-sized devices and they're not controlled, they're certainly an indication of, of the directions that the field's heading. I could imagine then what, something which could be interesting would be to have uh, multiple robots in the body. Would they have to find a way to communicate between each other, or would there always have to be this external sort of a controller, which would uh, basically a centralized control from the outside? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's, a, that's a great question, and I think you know people, a lot of people have talked about the idea of swarm robotics that you get many many of these small things uh, inter working together, and how they do that is I think a very interesting issue because when you look at at microorganisms, uh, for instance, spermatozoa, you see you see those films of all these spermatozoa swimming together, and it looks like they're having a race. Uh, but what's ha what's going on is actually the physics, uh, the fluid dynamics causes them. Uh, uh, to swim together in that way. So I, I think we're still trying to understand uh, uh, how we can build devices, build uh, these swarms of robots, and how are they going to interact with one another. And uh, it's going to be through the, the environment physically. It will also certainly be through some sort of external control, which will help uh, um, maneuver them in certain directions as well. Uh, but I think that's a, that's a great question and uh, uh, one I'd love to, to be able to study. Uh, as soon as we can get some micro-robots that have a lot of capabilities, then we'll start to see if we can make many, many of them working together. 
Hey, let's talk a bit about the future now. Okay. What will we be facing in terms of challenges uh, in biomicrorobotics for the next couple of years? Well, I think uh, there's a lot of challenges. The first one is, I think, to find the right applications. Uh, what, where is the technology? Where can we expect the technology to go uh, for legitimate uh, applications that really are going to impact, for instance, um, uh, medical uh, medical technologies? And so just, just trying to uh, hook up, uh, get that communication flowing uh, between the roboticists, the engineers, uh, the uh, uh, medical doctors, uh, any, and the, the pe people in the business world who are going to be uh, 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 creating these markets or, or pushing the technology there. I think that's one. The technological issues are still how do you deliver power to these? Uh, how do you control their location? Uh, how do you localize them within the body? In the eye, we can see them with an ophthalmic microscope. Uh, can we use ultrasonics? Uh, uh, Sylvain Martel at uh, the Cole Polytechnic in Montreal has uh, used MRI uh, machines to try and localize uh, small steel beads and to try and understand how that might work. Um, um, are, where, how can we find these? What, what kinds of, of drug delivery devices, what kinds of sensors are going to go on there? There's, there's a variety of, of uh, really interesting engineering problems uh, that we need to address uh, and, and a lot of technologies we need to, to have come together uh, for these uh, applications that we, we uh, envision to be realized. In the pharmaceutical industry, it takes quite some time before you can get a medication on the market. Uh, how do you think this will work for, for robots? Do you think we'll have to really wait, I don't know, 20 years before we can really see this uh, emerge in a, in a specific medical application? Gosh, I hope not. I, um, I, I think it's interesting uh, uh, how long it does take technology to get out there. I, I know uh, uh, Dr. Cuscieri, who we work with, uh, on a project, uh, one of the pioneers of minimally invasive surgery in here, Europe points out it took 30 years for the technology to come together to do minimally invasive laparoscopic kinds of surgery here. Uh, hopefully it won't take that long here. I think uh, we're more nimble than we were uh, uh, and we can move more quickly. Um, already we do see some, some devices and we see uh, venture capitalists and investors interested in, in some of these technologies and so that's a good sign. That means uh, people see the opportunity that uh, that there may be some some simple applications in the near term that these will be used for. I think some diagnostic applications will make them interesting. Um, but I think there's a there's a variety of of uh, therapies that, that uh, are of only uh, we we're only just starting to talk about. And, and which one of those uh, we get to uh, first is going to it's going to matter. Uh, it's going to depend on a lot of different. Uh, pieces of the puzzle coming together, not just the technology, but the, the getting the, the medical doctors to realize this, getting the, uh, uh, the business side, uh, the, the drug companies uh, to, uh, to see the potential as well. Is there one specific application besides the retinal surgery that you're interested in for the future? Well, that, uh, the, the retinal surgery is one that we've focused on, on uh, for several years. We are also working with uh, Paulo Dario's group at the University of Pisa, or at the Scuola Superiore in, in Pisa, and, and uh, Jean Pierre Millet at Enria, uh, Sophie Antipolis, and also Mr., uh, Dr. Sontier at uh, the University of Barcelona on uh, new ideas in gastrointestinal uh, inspection robots. And this is the idea of, of, of devices that will, uh, micro-robots that will actually come together to form larger structures, sort of self-assembling uh, robots. And so that's uh, one area that we're, we're looking at right now. In all areas of robotics now, where do you see the biggest potential? Oh, gosh, I think there's so much uh, potential in a lot of different areas. Uh, 
the medical robotics community, I think, not, not just the micro-robotics, but, but medical robotics uh, in itself uh, is, is, is a strong field, and, and uh, there's a lot of potential there. Uh, there's been great strides in, in autonomous vehicles made over the last several years, and you really can, I think, start to envision the day where uh, we'll have cars that are going to be pretty much driving on their own. Um, it's going to be a ways, but you, you, we've seen this over the over the over uh, many years now. We see as the cars become more and more intelligent and start doing more and more of the driving first cruise control and adaptive cruise control. We see ultrasonic bumpers. We see a lot of technologies that are that are getting there, and, and we see that. Um, I think uh, one thing that doesn't get a lot of notice, but I think is very true, is that robotics, of uh, course, grew out of, was primarily motivated a lot by manufacturing. Um, and I think you will continue to see it uh, grow in manufacturing. And in fact, I think what, one thing that you're going to see are um, uh, more and more uh, what should I say, developed, developed countries, countries like Switzerland and the United States, uh, using more intelligent devices to make their workers more more productive. And I think uh, we're we're seeing that happen uh, in factories, warehouses, with um, companies around. Uh, and uh, whether you like it or not, uh, of course, a, a huge driver for robotics technology these days is is a military, and so we're going to see uh, we're going to see uh, military applications of robotics uh, continue to grow. And twenty years from now, in which field will robotics have had the biggest impact on our lives? Well, I think it's had. Uh, we don't realize how big of a, an impact manufacturing has, has had on our life and how it's uh, changed the way uh, manufacturing is done and made uh, made things uh, more. Uh, efficiently produced, I, I think uh, that will happen. I, I, I know uh, uh, there, there are people that have, have said, uh, people like Russ Taylor at Johns Hopkins, who, who said uh, uh, several years ago, he says the next 25 years, uh, robotics will impact medicine uh, as dramatically as it has impacted uh, manufacturing in the past 25 years. So I think you'll see uh, uh, medical technology uh, change and uh, uh, a lot of that change will be driven by by the robotics uh, community and people working in that. Thanks, Brad, for being here with us on Talking Robots. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. This concludes this episode of Talking Robots with Brad Nelson on biomicrorobotics. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you in two weeks. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.